Ruth chapter 2, verse 17. So she, that is Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, We love your word. By it, we're taught the way to live. By it, we're made wise unto salvation. Father, your word is truth. Spirit, you inspired this word. And Jesus, you came, you came to show us the depths and meaning of it all. And it's all about you. And so, Father, I ask right now that you would sanctify us in truth. We know that your word is truth. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see what is true here? Shine the light of Christ into our hearts. Would you correct us where we need to be corrected, encourage us where we need encouragement, heal us where we need healing, help us to hold on to hope, Thank you that you hold on to us. So in the teaching of your word right now, would we see you as better than we saw you before? Would you be glorified in this time? All of our lives are for you and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Well, I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger on our intro last week, and that was strategic because one of the hardest things can be coming up with an intro, so I thought, what the heck, just uh, split it in half, and I've got next week covered. Uh, So as I was saying, I was uh, finally running into a woman named Deborah who, so you know, did become my wife. I ran into her in this building uh, at Abide. And what happened was uh, it was late October, or yeah, very late October. We just had a youth event where we dressed up, uh, had a costume contest. Uh, I was Ron Swanson and lost a bet with the youth, so I had a giant mustache and I had to keep it. I had to keep the mustache. 
And so I was like, ah, oh, man, even if I run into somebody, I got this stupid giant mustache on my face. Uh, but then Deb and I started talking, and to my astonishment and a sovereign move of God, she said, I really like your mustache in the midst of our conversation. Uh, to which I thought, something's up right now. God is on the move. Uh, and the next day, uh, she reached out to one of my friends. It was pure junior high school. Asked if uh, I liked anyone. He replied, he re- well, he first screenshotted that text and sent it to me. And then he, re- he replied to her, you know, he does like someone. And had a long pause. And it's you. Uh, and so my wife, with the, Ruth of initi- or with the initiative of a Ruth said, well, tell him to go for it. So I saw her the next day at church, and I waved at her, and she waved at me. And a blessed pastor during announcements encouraged us to squeeze in and make open seats, and just then a seat opened up next to Deb, and so I went for it, and I sat next to her, and I asked her out on a date. And and we went to sushi, and the rest is history. And it's a good story. It's, a, it's, a, it's my favorite story. Uh, Deb's probably, uh, probably the, she is the greatest gift God's given me in this life. Um, and that's absolutely true. And also, and also that story was preceded by another story of, uh, of three years of hardship and waiting. And three years may not sound like a long time in comparison to some other stories. Uh, it's not, but, but it was a story filled with heartbreak and heartache and wondering what God was going to do and if God was going to move, if God was going to provide. And I knew he was somehow, but I didn't know the specifics of that. And that's the reality of, a lot of, our, of all of our stories, really, that we have beautiful moments and blessings and seasons given by God, but we also have seasons of waiting. And, and even more often than not, those two things are simultaneous. There's times where good things are happening, where you have grandkids and friends, and God is moving in your life, and at the same time, there are hardships present. Things that you wish would be away, but these two things are going on at the same time. And that's really where we find ourselves today at the end of chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. And the, the main thing we see, the beautiful truth present here, is that in the midst of our trials and our tribulations, God's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Therefore, we have hope. So we're going to look at that truth under three headings. We're going to talk about faith at work. We're going to talk about kindness that forsakes not. And lastly, we're going to talk about a hope that endures. Let's first look at faith at work. And in that little subheading, there is a wordplay going on that it is, it is going to be our faith at work, like literally our jobs and our vocations. And it's also going to be a faith at work, as in it's active. It's doing something. It's working. It's not dead or just passive, but it's working. 
Let's read the first couple verses of our section of Scripture. Starting at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? We see in the character of Ruth and the narrative of the book that bears her name that there is something redemptive in showing up and working hard in the normal day to day. When we consider scripture, we find some, some astonishing truths, uh, like the following. In all of Paul's prayers, in all of Paul's prayers, we never once see him asking God to change people's circumstances. That's the truth of Paul's prayers. We, we do now, we do also have Jesus' prayer, let this cup pass from me. We do also have the Psalms where we are invoked to pray them as our own prayers. I ask God, God, show up now. God, intervene in this way. And yet, it seems God rarely just shows up and zaps us and changes all of our circumstances in a moment. Those, those times do happen, but it seems, it seems that he is also, more often than not, at work in the normal and ordinary things of day-to-day life. And so I, the way I'm hoping you're hearing this is if you've been in a hard spot for a while I want you to know that you're not just like broken. It's not like Christianity doesn't work for you. But I want you to know that God works in those seasons and are waiting. Consider with me uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and following. The story of Abraham. This is how the writer of Hebrews is going to instruct us. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. That God made a promise to Abraham, and it took years upon years upon years to see the fulfillment of that promise. God is at work in the normal, ordinary things of daily work. So we see Ruth, she goes and she gleans in the field. And the word for glean, it appears 12 times in chapter 2. As returning and repenting was threaded through chapter 1, appearing 12 times, so The word for gleaning appears 12 times in chapter 2. The book of Ruth is literary genius. It's beautiful. And so the writer is saying, there's something here. There's something here. 
12 times it's going to appear. Now let's talk about that word glean because the way we typically think of glean, the way I do often is uh, to glean something is to read a story and see what good things I can pick out of it. I glean it. But to glean isn't just to look at a story and pick something good out of it. To glean is to be in need of something that you don't have the resources to provide for yourself. That's what it means to glean. Widows going and needing someone to show kindness to not cut the corners of their property crops so that they might have something left over at the mercy of someone else. In faith at work, let's, let's talk about and look at Ruth's faith. Ruth, she has pledged her faithfulness to Naomi. You remember the beautiful words, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God is going to be my God. Your people are my people. And even if you die there, I'm going to die with you. And then she goes. She goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And she gets up and she goes to work in the morning to glean a field. And she gleans that field until evening. And then she beats out what she's gleaned. So she takes the stalk, she cuts it, and then they beat out where you take the top part of the grain and you have it there. And then you go to get the kernel inside, the seed inside. And she's done all of that and exhausted she must be. She goes back and she gives Naomi leftover food she has after being satisfied. Man, that's a hard day's work. And we know that Boaz has shown her kindness, has been telling his men, give her more, give her more. Just leave some stuff over there for her and make sure she gets enough. But I've, I've been arrested by that phrase, what food she had, she, or what food she had left over after being satisfied. That's what she gave to Naomi. And there is within this little snippet, this little Insight into scripture, there is in here an Ecclesiastes-like wisdom of finding contentment in the middle of imperfect life. Surely, surely the author is meaning primarily that she was satisfied in her stomach. She had something to eat. But I think there is a deeper meaning that points past it of finding, finding contentment and satisfaction in the midst of imperfect life. An Old Testament scholar named Max Roglin comments on the meaning of the wisdom we see in Ecclesiastes. He says this, Every human being wants to find out and understand all the ways of God in the world, but he cannot, because he is not God. And yet the faithful do not despair, but cling to God, who deserves their trust. They can leave it to him to make sense of it all, while they, while they seek to learn what it means to fear God and keep his commandments, even when they cannot see what God is doing. 
This is true wisdom. If you're, if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer, Solomon, he's going to try his hand at everything in the world to be able to find what true wisdom is. Is it in lavish living? Is it in uh, going and just reading enough books? Is it in suffering? Is it in hardships? Is it in goodness? What is it in? And what he sums up in the end, he says, this is what I know. Fear God and keep his commandments. And I found contentment in that. That's true wisdom. And we see in Ruth this playing out. She's faithful at work. What do we know about Ruth? She heard that Yahweh provided for his people in the uh, area of Bethlehem. He gave bread to them. And so she dared to go. And we see her at work at least a couple months of hard days. That's how long harvest is going to be. At least a couple of months. Not having in the middle of this. Not having the present assurance in this life that everything will get better the way she wants. She doesn't have that yet at this point in the story. And yet she finds satisfaction and has hope. So from that, what are we to glean from this. Not just pick out a good story, I'll take that truth, but as the needy people of God, what are we to receive from this? Well, for those of us who are younger men and women, especially in my generation, I think we see that we should show up and work hard at our jobs. And find daily satisfaction in what God provides. Trusting God is at work. It is rare that God provides a quick fix. He usually just doesn't just take a temptation away. That you will never be tempted in life again by this thing. He doesn't usually mature a person apart from hardships. He does absolutely provide good gifts and his wisdom is especially different than the typical wisdom we have in our 20s and in our 30s. He's at work to make us wise people. And it it is to quote Uh, Eugene Peterson, it is a long obedience in the same direction. His definition of discipleship. And you'll find his presence in that direction. And joy in the daily sufficiency of his word and prayer and spirit. We see that in Ruth. We see, we see the playing out of what Paul instructs the Philippians to do in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you see that? We work as God is working in us to will and to work what his good pleasure is. It is faith at work. 
Now, where, where does the book of Ruth meet those who have lived more life? In this room. Those who have perhaps found it hasn't turned out how they thought. There's blessings and there's hardships and they're often coming at the same time. Well, I'd, as a younger man, I'd want to just be able to encourage you to keep holding on with our hope in sight. I want to remind you that God is daily sufficient. His grace will be enough today. And when you go to bed and then you get up in the morning tomorrow, he's going to have new mercies for you. And his grace tomorrow will be sufficient for you then too. And there's coming a day when you're going to experience the consummation of his kindness. The reality of it is, Economies collapse. Retirement funds dry up. Bodies stop working. Relationships fracture. We don't see everything God is doing in the micro. So what what should we do at such times when we can't see what he's doing? First, I'd want to encourage us to consider the faithfulness of God in decades past. I was running some of these things uh, by my own mom and asking, does that make sense? Does that, uh, does that sound right? And she said, you know, the older I've gotten, one of the greatest gifts I have is now I have decades to look back and remind myself and remember how God has always been faithful. I was like, preach, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Consider the faithfulness of decades past. And I I can't help but think of this quote by J.I. Packer. It's had an enormous impact on my own life when we think about the wisdom of God. We may be frankly bewildered at things that happen to us. But God knows exactly what he is doing and what he is after in his, in his handling of our affairs. Always and in everything, he is wise. We shall see that hereafter, even where we never saw it here. Job in heaven knows the full reason why he was afflicted though he never knew it in this life. Meanwhile, we ought not to hesitate to trust his wisdom, even when he leaves us in the dark. And Packer goes on to say, so, so what do we do when we find ourselves in those times that we're bewildered by what has befallen us? He says, well, first, we ought to take them as from God and ask what reaction to and in them the gospel of God requires of us. Okay, I don't understand all this, but what in light of the fact that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, and he rose from the dead and he's coming again, how does that affect my perception of this? 
And secondly, he says, and seek God's face specifically about them. There's a note of mystery in there, right? Something you need to seek God's face specifically about it. In the midst of getting up one day with a body that aches and working a job past the age of retirement and not knowing the future for you, Christian, at that kind of work, God is at work. Now, something beautiful happens after Naomi sees the amount of food that Ruth has brought. And there's a wordplay going on here in the original language uh, where it says that Ruth brings an ephah of flour. It's a measurement. We always see that. We're like, what's an ephah? It must be a lot. It's about five and a half gallons worth. So think of a five and a half gallon, five gallon bucket, that much grain. That's going to be, for one person, that's about two weeks worth of food. So that's a good haul for one day. Uh, so she brings an ephah of grain, and it elicits a question from Naomi. She says, ephah, ephah, which means where? Like, where did you get this? And so there's going on something in here where Ruth brings the product, what God has provided, and Naomi sees it and says, where? Where is this from? What's going on here? What's going on there? Well, this is what's going on. A world is watching. Naomi was watching Ruth. A world is watching us, our neighbors, our coworkers. And the kind of satisfaction that God provides, which is sufficiency in the midst of hardship, which is Christ with us in the midst of crisis, that kind of satisfaction that God provides is a testimony to other people. People are seeing how God is providing, not always in the ways we thought he would, not always how we would want or in our time, but he is providing. It's a testimony to other people. So Naomi sees God's providence and makes clear what has only been assumed thus far. We have faith at work because God's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. We see a kindness that forsakes not. Naomi speaks, blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So Naomi breaks out in blessing of the man who would provide in this way. And she says, who is this? And Ruth, like we all have one of these friends, she waits to the last word to reveal who it is, right? Just building the suspense. I have a friend like that. I won't reveal who. Uh, but he always builds stories, and he's a great storyteller. But she says, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now look at Naomi's blessing in response to this. She speaks a word of blessing. 
May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. A few things to notice in here. First, the praise, it goes past, it goes through Boaz and it goes to the Lord. The kindness that is shown is recognized. This is actually the kindness that God is showing. And at the same time, it's interesting because the text is ambiguous about who the kindness belongs to. Boaz's kindness, the Lord's kindness, it, it's not clear which, whose kindness is in view. And I think that's actually intentional because God works through his people. We are a sent people. And yes, in the final estimate, it absolutely is God who gets all the glory But do you see the way God wants to use his people? He wants to use us to the point that we are the instruments of his kindness in the world. As people see the kindness of God's spirit working through you, they say, blessed be the Lord. It's, you did this for me, but it was actually God doing it for me. I know that. And what typifies this kind of kindness? What do we see it, uh, what do we see it all rooted in? What's the explanation? It's a kindness that has not forsaken the living or the dead. What does that mean? Well, in the immediate context, we have to ask, what, what did this mean right there at this time? And what it meant is he's literally providing for their life. He is giving them food to eat. He has provided for the living. And for the dead, that means that Naomi in this moment has hope that her family line may be extended. You see, her, her husband's name died off. But if, if there's one, if there's one, and we'll talk about this in a moment, who might take Ruth, the dead, not even the dead might be forsaken. Their name might go on in a way. But there's something more than just this at play. It's not just in the moment that he's providing food and maybe uh, the family last name will go on. What's more, with what there is more in, in here is found in the word kindness. And when we understand that, we start to get a bigger view of what's, what God is doing and at work in. The word for kindness here is hesed, or chesed. But nobody likes it when you get the ch thing, you know? So, uh, or at least, you know what I'm saying. Uh, hesed is translated in different Bible translations as loving kindness, or kindness, or steadfast love, or mercy. And this is the covenantal love of God that he has pledged to his people. So God, in Genesis chapter 12, made a covenant, made a promise with Abraham and promised to bless him to be a blessing to all nations. I'm going to do that for you by giving you a son. And what do we see Abraham do? Abraham's call to be faithful to God. Abraham multiple times puts everything in jeopardy. One, he has, he has a son with a woman other than his wife, Sarah. 
And two, not once, but twice, he allows Sarah to be given away to another man to save his own skin. It's like, my wife is very beautiful. If I go into the city, the ruler might want her. I'm just going to say I'm her brother. Abraham, father of our faith, wavering, it seems, in a moment. But God stops any man from sleeping with her. God looks back on Abraham and in the book of Romans says, Abraham did not waver in his faith concerning the promise. What's going on here? God promises in the Mosaic covenant to bless his people if they will follow his commandments. He says, I have rescued you, now you obey me. We see God's people over and over again break his commandments and yet he shows said to them. He shows unfailing love, steadfast, unchanging, a love set upon by him, not earned by them. So how can God choose to love us like this and be just? Because I want that, but it doesn't seem to be logical or just. I want a God who does set things right, who punishes Evil, yet I see in myself there is evil. So how can this happen? Why can Naomi believe in a love that doesn't forsake the living, or the living or the dead? Well, what Naomi knew in part, we know in full. And we get a glimpse of how God will show has said to his people in the last part of verse 20. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. That word redeemer, uh, we're going to go hopefully so much deeper into this because this could consume all of our lives for the rest of history, seeing the depths of redemption provided by God. But as a foretaste of that, that word redeemer, goel, uh, it's one who is described in the book of Leviticus as someone who is related to a widow who lost her husband. And that person would take her in and provide for her. And we've said that multiple times, but we kind of, we don't get the real sense and depth of this kind of love. Because a redeemer is someone who is putting hased into action. That kind of hesed, steadfast love, it's what Paul Miller calls love without an exit plan. It's I promise to you and I'm not getting out no matter what. It's what marriage is called to be. But it's more than that. It's taking someone else's wife who is uh, in providing for them after their husband has passed away. Alec Matir describes it in this way. What then is this next of kin or relative? What is this Goel? He's the one who has the right to say, you've got a problem? Give it to me. You've got a burden? Let me bear it. You've got a debt? Let me pay it as though it were mine. You've got a need? Let me meet it. In this way, we are to understand the word redemption? This is precisely what the Lord meant when he allowed his Old Testament people to think of him as their redeemer and spoke of himself as such. 
This is exactly what God, what Jesus has done. For, has done. You've got a burden, your sin, give it to me. You've got a debt in the sight of God, let me pay it. You've got a need you cannot possibly meet, let me meet it for you. Because Christ, the only one draped in human flesh who faithfully held up the other end of the covenant, was treated not as blessed, but as accursed for our treason. Because of him, God shows us this kind of love. God held up both ends of the covenant for us. The Old Testament says, Cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. And Christ hung on the cross and he was forsaken that we might never be. And he rose from the dead. And so he gives hope to both the living and the dead. And so we can say the following thing from scriptures. I'm going to have them on the screen. And I've italicized uh, the word has said in the following verses. Maybe you knew, maybe you didn't know that this is the idea that's getting through in these verses we probably love. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy, unfailing love, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Jeremiah 31, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Lamentations 3, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So that gives us hope. Therefore, in light of that, we have hope and hope that endures. Ruth 2.21 to the end. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. How do you know you have this kind of hope? Well, I want to I go at it this way. I want to contrast Naomi's words here with what her words were like in chapter 1. If you see some of these first fruits of hope, you know, okay, this is hope that endures. If you're not seeing them, look to the cross. Look at what Christ has done how he has redeemed you, how he was at work in all of history to send Jesus Christ into the world to save. First fruits of hope. 
first thing we can see is goodness replaces, it starts to replace bitterness. First words out of the mouth of Naomi, the one who said, call me Mara. She said, it is exceedingly bitter. Something's changed in her. She says, it is good. It's good. And that seems like a small change. And maybe on the surface it is, but anyone who's been through something like this, where you've only seen the bitterness of life with that small change, you know God is doing something great. We also see that where you're at right now is not where you're destined to always be. Naomi wasn't Mara forever. We can think because of the things that happened to me, nothing will ever change. I'm on, this will only ever be this way. God is at work. One of God's people has shown kindness to Naomi. And she says not, it is bitter. She says, it is good. Second thing we start to see is that covenant is deeper than blood. Covenant becomes deeper than blood. What I mean by this is that the author of Ruth says, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter. We stop seeing people in the normal social constructs we're used to. A person isn't a relative and therefore closer, but if they are in Christ, oh, you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my daughter, you are my father, you are my mother. It changes the way we see one another. It's no longer someone out there, but someone in here. And anyone else outside of the family, we have hope. If I could be brought into this family, I know they could too. And I desperately want that. And lastly, hope breaks in where there was only hopelessness before. She says, keep close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until... Uh, Keep close to his young women, lest in another field you'll be assaulted. She warns her and says, hey, make sure you stay close. And what is this actually a sign? This is a sign of, oh, maybe God's doing something. There's real hope right now. She's not completely fully there yet. The wheels are turning in her head. She's like, I might be a matchmaker. I might be able, okay, I see what's going on here. But she says, stay close. Hope is broken in. A light of ray is shown, and that makes all the difference. Chapter 2 closes with an anticlimax. After all of this, Ruth lived with her mother in law. <laughs> And there is what appears to be an anticlimax in the Christian life. Namely, death. And an outsider looking in would see only death and decay. And yet it is on the other side of this apparent anticlimax that lie the bounty of redemption and healing and wholeness. At this point in the story, Boaz may be the redeemer they're looking for. 
the apparent answer to all their problems. But they don't know yet. But in the midst of it, we see Naomi has already been redeemed. God has already changed her. And that's the hope of your redemption too. It's going to be on the other side of death. If Christ does not come first, that he's going to make everything right. And until then, he will always be wise and he will always be good. And he will not forsake you. But that is the hope we hold on to. The hope of Christ's return. And until then, we live in the redemption he has provided. Let's pray. Lord, you know every single story in this room. And God, we want to say together in faith that you are always wise in what you're doing. That we, we might even in this life never understand all of why, but we know you're good. We know you're faithful. We know that you have redeemed those who have trusted Christ. And so, Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your daily sufficiency. We praise you that you give peace. Not as the world gives peace, do you give it? But you give us your very own peace. And it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so, Lord, right now, in these next moments of worship and singing and taking of the supper that you provided. I ask that you would meet your people. I ask that we would find in you sufficiency, the redemption we're looking for. That we would trust and wait in the hope of glory that will be revealed, Christ, when you come again. Until then, we praise you because you're dwelling in us by your Spirit. You know what we need. Provide for us. In Christ's name.